Good evening and welcome. My name is Nick Keep. I'm the Executive Dean of the School of Science. And on behalf of the Master, I'm pleased to welcome you all to this inaugural lecture for Professor Rick Cooper. Unusually in science, the central tenet of Rick's application for promotion was a, a book. Most of us can't write more than 10 pages without being told we've gone way beyond our data. But Rick has come up with a, a whole book along with Professor Tim Chalice. Not just any book, but a book that won the first British Academy Book Prize. So this was a, a major academic <coughs> achievement. But actually, promotion is never about one piece of work. It's about the rounded package of an academic. So not only has Rick written this book, he's written over 40 peer-reviewed papers. Indeed, because it takes nearly 18 months for these things to happen, he's probably got to 50 peer-reviewed papers by now. So, so Rick has a, a strong research record. He's an excellent teacher, tackling some of the more difficult computational side of psychology for our students. And he's a good administrator. The work he's done as assistant dean for research has been very important, particularly work on storing data and making the data for our experiments publicly, publicly accessible. He's become the, the college expert on public exposure of our data. So what can I tell you about Rick? Well, he's, he did his first degree in New South Wales before coming to Edinburgh for his PhD. He then moved to the, the other, other institution in Bloomsbury that we don't mention all that much for a few years before having the sense to come to Birkbeck as a lecturer. And over this period, he's worked, worked up through the ranks until having his chair conferred on him last October. So without further ado, I will introduce Professor Rick Cooper to talk about modelling cognitive function and dysfunction. Thanks very much, Nick, and uh, thank you all for coming. I do appreciate you making the time. Um, what I want to talk about today really is just the, the role of computational modelling within cognitive science and within a, the sort of multidisciplinary endeavour to understand the mind. Uh, often you find pictures uh, in cognitive science textbooks, for example, uh, such as, as this, which tries to illustrate that cognitive science is a multidisciplinary endeavour with lots of different disciplines contributing um, towards, our, hopefully, our understanding of, of the mind. But why do we need all of these disciplines? I mean, these days, and in particular, why do we need all of the methods associated with those disciplines? Uh, these days, people might argue that you know, we've got wonderful uh, well, certainly improving technology for uh, various types of brain imaging. Um, we've got, you know, shouldn't we be concentrating on understanding the mind by understanding the brain? Um, so I will, um, or I take the position uh, that the neuroscience evidence alone is not sufficient um, and that we do need this plurality of methods. So we do need um, not just the neuroscience, but we need uh, cognitive psychology and we need linguistics and so on, anthropology, etc. But what I want to focus on today is the role of computational cognitive modelling within cognitive science. Um, and I want to illustrate this by going through four computational cognitive models that I've uh, been involved in the development of during my uh, career. And um, in particular, to look at some of the questions that they allow us to address or allow us to answer. So those models um, are a model of routine sequential action selection and its disorders, uh, which I worked on with uh, Tim Chalice for many, many years. Um, and a number of other, other people. Uh, the second one is a model of information seeking and categorization in a simulated medical diagnosis task, which I 
uh, work done with John Fox and some other people. Um, again, these are sort of models from uh, 10 to 20 years ago. Um, more recently, worked on a um, model with uh, Celia Hayes and colleagues on imitation and stimulus response compatibility. I'll talk briefly about that. Uh, and finally, uh, if time permits, on the modulation of routine behavior, which sort of uh, is the other end of that uh, first model. Uh, along the way, I want to emphasize a number of uh, critical methodological points, which I think are uh, essential in computational cognitive modeling. Uh, there's a, um, a real danger that one can develop computer programs that simulate some aspect of human behavior and then sort of say, ah, look, I've, I've you know, achieved something. Um, but we really need to be much more careful about our methodology if we're able to actually deduce anything from those uh, simulations. Um, so I'll speak uh, about specification, replication, falsification, and experimentation as we go through. So um, I, I do think I probably have enough material for two or three hours. So I may well uh, skip slides along the way to make sure that we do finish before seven. Uh, so much with this first model, um, model of routine sequential action uh, and its disorders, uh, this came about by, um, as, a, as a postdoc, I was working with uh, Tim Charles and John Fox. And one of the models that we we're interested in then, or one of the theories we we're interested in then, was this theory of routine action selection um, based on the contention scheduling theory of Norman and Shallis, which I'll go into in a moment. The, the basic claim of this is that much of our behavior is, is routine um, or, and schematic, so things like dressing and grooming and meal preparation, commuting, you know, even giving lectures, maybe if we do it frequently enough, um, is very routine. It's just a matter of sort of following through these sort of schematic um, behaviors. You do this, then you do this, then you do this, and maybe you need to um, relate that particular behavior to specifics in the environment, to specifics at, at the time that you're actually performing it, but the, the sequence of events, the sequence of, of sub-actions is um, pretty much set. Um, but that routine behavior is subject to slips and lapses, um, errors of routine behavior. We might leave things out or perseverate, repeat actions. Um, you can think of uh, these sorts of errors in terms of maybe if you're doing a routine task like, um, well, preparing a cup of tea or dressing or something like this. Um, you might make it, an, well, an admission error, you um, forget to put sugar in your coffee or something like this, or perseveration, you put sugar in more than once, even though you usually only have one, one uh, sugar capture error. Maybe you're um, used to making coffee for two people and uh, there's only one person home, but you still get out two cups and so on, and then you start sort of going down that routine of the two cups of coffee and so on. So there are lots of these sorts of errors that occur in routine behavior. Um, so we were interested in trying to understand why those errors occur and being able to explain them. Um, but errors also occur in a number of disorders, a number of uh, neurological disorders. Um, and often those errors are similar to the sorts of errors we find in routine behavior of, uh, of non-brain damaged individuals, but more severe. Um, so action disorganization syndrome, which typically um, is related to uh, frontal injury, uh, patients such as these might sort of commit very flagrant sort of errors, such as making coffee with butter in, for example. And they'll drink the coffee and just sort of say, well, this, um, you know, they, they'll say they always have butter in their coffee, if you ask them about it, um, but they'll clearly grimace as they drink it, sort of as if something's not quite right. Um, on the other hand, patients with ideational apraxia, uh, which sometimes occurs following left parietal damage, 
may make errors such as um, misusing objects. So maybe trying to cut an orange instead of cutting the orange by sawing it, they'll cut it by trying to push the knife through it, which is kind of a, an appropriate action for the wrong sort of object. <coughs> Excuse me. And we also have things like utilization behavior, um, where uh, the classic patient, uh, discussed by a French neurologist, neurologist Lemite, uh, was given a pair of spectacles, he put the spectacles on his nose, he was then given another pair, he put those on, he was given a third pair, and he kept putting them on his nose until they, they fell off. So his behaviour was driven by the things in the environment. It was very, the actions that were performed were triggered by the presence of objects in the environment. Um, but clearly routine behaviour is subject to modulation in non-routine situations. So we're trying to understand all of this um, within a, a computational model. The model itself... Uh, then is, is really based on this theory of contention scheduling and supervisory attention uh, developed by Norman and Shellis back in the 1980s and updated by Burgess and Shellis. And we're actually going to be interested in this little box down here. Um, but I will come back to the other aspects of this system um, near the end. So we're interested just in this so-called contention scheduling system accounting for this uh, routine behaviour. Um, we did this by developing a, a so-called interactive activation model where we had a number of different uh, interactive activation networks. Networks that represent schemas for uh, routine actions, routine action sequences, and those schemas might be for an action sequence like preparing a cup of coffee or like adding sugar to a cup um, or uh, even lower level things like picking up an implement which require fixating on the implement and then grasping. So we have a network of, of schemas, each one of those uh, things, units, nodes, or whatever in the schema network has an activation value which varies from, in our case, 0 to 1, from a low value to a high value. Uh, we also have a, a network of object representations, the mental uh, internal representation of objects, uh, which similarly they have activations that vary from 0 to 1 and can interact with the schemas, and a network also of uh, effectors, the, the hands and maybe other subsystems that can interact with these schemas, again, through the systems of, inter of uh, interactive activation. The idea is that the environment uh, triggers or excites certain schemas, um, those things that we're sort of familiar with, um, which then, once they become sufficiently activated, are selected, they're performed um, by the most system, which changes the environment, leading to new schemas becoming uh, activated select and selected. But this system can be modulated by the, the uh, higher level intention. And with this model, uh, we'll just go into a little bit more detail, actually, about the, the relations between objects and schemas, because this is going to be uh, important in the one illustration I give of this. Um, we have here that uh, each box is meant to represent a node within the object representation network, uh, and each box on this side a node within the schema network. And there are relations of activation and inhibition between these. So, for example, a schema for preparing juice will tend to activate the, um, the representation of the knife and vice versa because this scheme uses a knife and similarly a knife is used by preparing juice. Preparing juice also has um, one of the sub-goals is that you need to cut an orange in half. So um, it activates sub-goals for um, cutting. There may be different ways of cutting, cutting by sawing or cutting by pushing a knife down and so on. Um, these different ways of cutting inhibit each other, so these types of links here are meant to be inhibitory links. Um, similarly, the preparing juice schema will tend to activate the representation of an orange if present. Um, wouldn't activate the representation of a ball, 
but both an orange and a ball might activate other schemas. So we've got lots of things uh, going on here, interacting with each other, tending to activate or inhibit each other. And the, the main sort of um, feature of this model is ensuring that that activation is controlled in such a way that the right things become active at the right time in sequence. Um, so without going to any, through any of the details of the model, let's look at just the output. Um, so this graph here shows the activation of schemas through time. So time along here, activation going up here from 0 to 1. And each line represents uh, a different schema. And you can see sort of schemas become act or one schema becomes active here. That's actually the schema for preparing juice in this particular task. The idea is that you're given an instruction to prepare juice. Uh, after a while, um, that schema become, is selected. It becomes sufficiently active to uh, control the system, and it starts to activate its subschemas, which in this case would be to cut an orange, um, which then activates its subschema, which is that you need to pick up a knife, and so on. Um, once we get down to this lowest level of behavior, so you can see also that we have a hierarchical structure here. And once we get down to the lowest layer, the lowest level, actions are actually performed. So this involves sort of fixating on the knife. This one is picking up the knife, uh, and so on. This graph is showing a, a similar sort of situation for the activation of uh, objects acting as implements through time. So this spike here corresponds to the knife, which becomes active as an implement throughout the task of cutting an orange. Uh, a little bit later, the juicer uh, that you're squeezing the orange on becomes active for a period um, whilst you're squeezing the orange as, a, as an implement. And down here we see the sequence of actions. These just correspond to the, the um, spikes, basically, on the left-hand side. So that's sort of the basic functioning of the model at a very uh, brief and abstract level. Now, we've used this model in a number of different... to look at uh, action organisation, both in normal behaviour, sort of errors that uh, are made in normal behaviour, action slips, as, slips and lapses, and slipses that are made in normal behaviour. Um, uh, but also we've used it to look at specific types of action error that occur in specific types of patient. Um, so I just want to focus on one of those, which is uh, ideational apraxic patients. As I said, these are the patients who typically uh, have left parietal damage. Now, not all patients with left parietal damage exhibit ideational apraxia. It's rel relatively rare, especially in a sort of pure form. Uh, but these are two uh, patients studied by uh, Raphael Romiati and Trieste some years ago, patient DR and patient FG. And uh, it, the data here show the sorts of errors that those patients made on a series of uh, 10 multiple object tasks. So these are tasks like uh, juicing an orange. Because it was done in, in Italy, it's uh, one of the tasks is uh, assembling a, a mocha espresso machine. Uh, other tasks include sort of lighting a candle, putting the candle in the candle holder, or candlestick and lighting the candle, and so on. Um, the patients both made some sequence errors. Patient FB, by the way, is, is clearly sort of more impaired. Patients both made some sequence errors where they performed actions out of, out of sequence. Um, but patient DR tended to make sort of so-called misuse type 2 errors where they, the patient would use objects such as tools, but in the wrong way. So this is one of these cases of trying to cut the orange by slicing rather than by, um, by sawing. So it's the right uh, objects being used, but in the wrong way. Um, Patient, patient uh, FG, on the other hand, was particularly prone to these so-called mislocation errors, mis or mislocation type 2 errors in particular, where <clears throat> the patient was performing an action 
in the wrong location. So this, uh, an example of this is striking a match, but striking it on the wrong part of the matchbox. So rather than striking on the, the part of the matchbox which is sort of rough and that's used for lighting the match, patient FG tended to do things like maybe striking it on the inside of the matchbox. DR didn't exhibit these sorts of errors. So we seem to have a, a bit of a dissociation here as well between these two patients. And although they're both classified as ideational apraxic in terms of the sorts of errors that they're making, they make both these sort of sequential errors and other more sort of conceptual errors in their behaviour, <clears throat> they are also different. Um, so we were interested in trying to understand these differences, and we can in fact understand the differences within the model um, by looking at the relation between the schema network and the object network. Um, now both of these networks we assume there's, there's sort of a, a host of parameters underlying this model which I haven't gone into, um, but both of these networks, um, as I say, they, they interact, there's a, a parameter that basically determines the extent to which activation flows in this direction and the extent to which activation flows back. And those parameters really just are, um, need to be adjusted within the model to make sure that the, the model is sort of well behaved in the sense that steam has become active, don't become too active, objects become active, don't become too active, and so on. Um, but if we damage the network by setting the, by basically setting this parameter zero to zero, so we don't have activation flowing back from the object network to the schema network, uh, then we are able to model DR's deficit. We get the sorts of errors that DR made when um, DR might uh, misuse objects. And basically the reason for this is that um, the schema network specifies the goals and sub-goal relationships, and it specifies that you need to cut the orange, but it doesn't specify how you should cut an orange. That's kind of specified by uh, the sorts of things that, that you are cutting which needs the object network. So you need this activation to come back here to determine how to cut the orange. FG's deficit, on the other hand, um, was well modelled by a deficit affecting the um, activation flowing in the opposite direction from the schema network to the object network. So we were able to understand the deficit of, deficits of these two ideational apraxic patients who are sort of similar but different um, in terms of the interaction between these two uh, networks. And that was something which, um, you know, initially we, we didn't uh, anticipate how we would account for these within the model. We, uh, you know, it would have been nice to use this model in a much more um, sort of hypothesis-driven way. Um, but we actually didn't have a clear hypothesis about why these sorts of errors might be different and didn't really, uh, at, the, at the beginning of the work, weren't sure if it really um, was something that was sort of, you know, an interesting thing to, that we should be following up or, or not. Um, so this model, though, is one which I've, I've worked on with a number of people over a number of years. <coughs> the original work with, with Tim Shullis giving a qualitative account um, of the errors arising from neurological damage and also um, errors in normal routine behaviour. Um, we then looked at things like how the relationships between objects and schemas can be learnt through simple reinforcement learning. So, you know, how do you know that some things are graspable? graspable some things you can pick up, some things you can cut, and so on. These kind of relationships can be learnt through simple reinforcement learning. Um, the original modelling was, was giving a qualitative account, so we sort of were able to demonstrate that these errors arose, but we didn't attempt to give a quantitative account of the specific relationships between different types of errors. Um, we did that a little bit later with uh, Myrna Schwartz's group. Myrna Schwartz, a neuropsychologist in the US. Uh, I've mentioned the ideational apraxia work there. 
We've also looked at the role of uh, explicit goals and schemas within this uh, model. There's a, a rival model developed by uh, Matt Botvinnik and David Plout, which tries to account for these behaviours using um, a different type of network, a simple recurrent network, um, that is able to learn the task, but we argued that there are certain limitations of that model because of the lack of explicit representations of schemas and goals. Uh, one of the strengths of this model, although our, our model doesn't learn, is it's reasonable, it's easy to understand how you might use the model or how the might, model might account for um, modifying behaviour in a situation where you, know, you deliberately want to add uh, extra sugar to your coffee or so on. Uh, or, you know, it's basically got the flexibility to modify your, your routine behaviours in a way that the, the rival model, in our view, did not have. Um, although we do accept there are some uh, interesting principles in that rival model, and we've also more recently looked at some kind of uh, <coughs> sort of model that, that incorporates principles of both. So that's sort of one, one uh, model in, in very, I don't know, not, not a great deal of detail. But it's an illustration of the sort of work uh, that I have been involved with, where we've used these computational modeling techniques to understand sort of impairments and uh, try to relate existing psychological theories, develop existing psychological theories in order to understand those impairments. Um, I should say that in developing the model, we did need to push the theory quite a lot. The, th the original theory didn't say very much, didn't say anything, in fact, about the relationship between objects and schemas, for example. It didn't say very much about the relation between schemas and goals. So we had to develop the theory in order to implement the theory. So the process of doing the computational modelling forced us to be much more precise about some aspects of the theory that had not originally been considered. <clears throat> OK, so let me now turn to a, a completely different domain, um, information seeking and categorization in a simulated medical diagnosis task. Um, the task is, is you know, pretty straightforward. I was told this morning that you needed one cartoon and one picture of a famous person, at least. So, <laughs> so that's the, the, I already had the cartoon and picture of a famous person in there. But anyway, um, consider a doctor attempting to diagnose a patient. How does a doctor recognize a set of symptoms as an instance of a disease? So this is a simple categorization, or you might consider it a simple categorization problem. We have a set of symptoms. We have to map it to um, one or other of a, a number of diseases. Um, but there's a little bit more to it than that, because the doctor might also decide that he or she needs more information. So the doctor has, may need to decide uh, that they need to query some further symptoms, send the patient for tests, and so on. So that it's not quite so simple as a simple sort of as, uh, just categorization. Um, sorry, but um, categorization is a is a you know, general um, uh, sort of class of problem. Um, what cognitive processes then support our ability to learn to categorize patterns as instances of classes? I, I don't know. There you go. That's, um, recognize patterns as instances of classes. Um, or indeed, you know, categorization. As I say, it's a very general sort of thing. Maybe it's you know, specific types of dog as being, or specific instances of dog as being a wolfhound, or specific wolf, or wolfhounds in general as being types of dog, or you know, positions of chess pieces on a board as being attacking, attacking, pieces, uh, attacking positions or defensive positions or so on. So um, categorization is a, a, a very broad um, cognitive ability. Um, equally, sort of information seeking is a, is a common sort of uh, aspect of cognition. 
Um, but information sequencing as well, seeking, sorry, is a decision problem. We might need to enumerate our available options. Suppose we want to know what the weather's like tomorrow. We might uh, you know, use Google. We might go and listen to the TV news. We might get a newspaper or so on. There are a number of options we might evaluate you know, without necessarily being consciously aware of it. Um, trade off the costs and benefits of all of those options in coming to a, a decision. So these are general processes. Now, within the literature, there's three very broad theories, probably more than three broad theories, but three broad theories that we can look at um, and that we looked at in this particular work. Hypothesis testing, where um, a subject might generate a set of hypotheses based on their knowledge of symptom-disease relations. They know that this symptom uh, tends to co-occur with this disease or tends to be a sign of this disease. So they might sort of generate a hypothesis. Uh, given that the patient has an earache, the patient probably has... Ebola or something, probably not that hypothesis, but um, generate a hypothesis based on the symptoms and then might query symptoms in order to either verify their hypothesis or eliminate hypotheses or discriminate between hypotheses and so on. So a very sort of, um, you might call that high-level or symbolic approach, logic-based approach maybe. On the other hand, one can adopt an associationist approach um, where symptoms activate or configurations of symptoms maybe or sets of symptoms activate associated diseases, we might then seek information that will uh, increase the, uh, the difference between the activated diseases so that one disease is most active. You know, the, the information that we might initially have, you know, if the patient comes along presenting with earache, that might activate several diseases. We may then query some specific symptom that will try to discriminate between those or try to lead to greater diagnostic certainty. Um, and the final one we considered was the, the Bayesian approach, which is um, sort of the, the... Bayesian is probably not quite the right, right phrase here, the optimal approach. We can calculate the probability of each disease given the known symptoms, and we can also query symptoms on the basis of which one is going to lead to the greatest information gain. So if we have a theory of... Um, or or we, we can sort of use the mathematical theory of information to work out which symptoms we should query in order to optimise our, our uh, behaviour. So we have three broad classes of theory. And the question really is, uh, <coughs> does any of those theories, or how do those theories account for human behaviour? Does, does one of those theories provide a better account than either of the others? So in order to do this, we um, developed a task building on some work which um, John Fox had done earlier, 20-odd um, years earlier. <laughs> um, a simulated medical diagnosis task, and this is sort of where we went off and did some empirical work to complement the, the mathematical work, uh, the, the computational modelling work. So uh, in, the empirical, in the experiment, subjects were presented with a symptom, such as earache. Uh, <clears throat> they had a number of possible dis diseases, made-up diseases, I think things like catalgia, and uh, I can't really remember what they, they all were these days, but... Um, the subject could also query whether other symptoms were present or absent. So the other symptoms might be sort of headache or temperature or so on. There were five symptoms and four possible diseases. The relationships were um, probabilistic. So most of the time, catalgia um, might be associated with earache. But sometimes you could have catalgia without having an earache, much like in the, the real world. We had two conditions with 20 subjects per condition. And uh, <coughs> the two conditions were actually informationally identical in the that one was, uh, we called it dense, with many symptoms per disease. So there might be on average three symptoms associated with each disease, or three and a half symptoms per disease. The other was sparse, 
uh, in the sense that there might be fewer symptoms, maybe one and a half symptoms on average per disease, but they're informationally equivalent in that if the symptom was present in this case, it would be absent in this case and vice versa. So actually, if subjects were able to key into this fact that information absence was just as important as information presence, then they'd be uh, equivalently good on both of these conditions. Um, not surprisingly, they, they weren't. Um, so these are the, the basic results. Um, the sparse condition is shown with the unfilled dots, the dense condition with the filled dots. On accuracy, we see that subjects in the first block, uh, over four blocks, started off um, above chance. There were four diseases, so the chance would be 25%. Slightly above chance because there's, uh, I forgot now how many trials there were in a block, but they, they might, would start off at chance on the first few trials, but throughout the block they gradually learned something. Um, and in the dense condition, they improved to about 50% on the course of the experiment. Um, in the sparse condition, they do somewhat better. Um, so there's an improvement in performance in both conditions, but there's no interaction, basically, in the, the statistics here. The other thing about this task, though, is that patient uh, subjects can make a decision whenever they like, or they can make a diagnosis whenever they like. They can make a diagnosis after the first symptom, or they could query all symptoms before making a diagnosis. So they have to do this trade-off. Um, in the dense condition, subjects tended to ask um, for most symptoms all the way through. They didn't show any decrease in the number of symptoms queried, whereas in the sparse condition, there was a, a gradual decline, and this is a, a significant interaction here. So the dense condition stays high, the sparse condition declines um, slightly but significantly in the number of uh, symptoms queried. So in other words, subjects realise they don't need to ask about certain symptoms uh, given you know, given earache, they don't really care about whether headache's present or absent, so they don't ask, and they are able to learn that in the sparse condition, but not in the dense condition, not so much. So we developed each of those theories, we developed into a model, computational model. Um, we have a hypothesis testing model, um, a, uh, an associationist model, and a Bayesian model. And for all three models, we tried to keep as much of the sort of rest of the system, if you like, constant. So in the hypothesis testing model, shown here, um, we basically have you know, information comes into working memory. There's a, a learning mechanism which sort of sees what information is in working memory, what symptoms and diseases are, uh, are present. Um, there's a decision procedure which, on the basis of what's in working memory, decides what to do, whether to ask for another symptom, query a specific symptom, or whether to uh, offer a diagnosis. And that also consults this knowledge base which is gradually uh, developed during the, the task, so the subjects gradually learn. Um, a similar sort of situation holds for the associationist model, except that here we're using a, feed forward, a simple feedforward network which maps symptoms to diseases. So uh, again, there's a learning mechanism there which adjusts the weights in that network, the associations between symptoms and diseases based on what's in working memory, but the decision procedure is able to use that information to, again, offer a diagnosis or query, uh, decide that it needs to query additional symptoms. And a similar sort of thing with the Bayesian model. Here, though, the, model, the knowledge base is um, a number is uh, counts of how many times the symptoms were observed, how many times diseases were observed, how many times they co-occurred, and so on. Uh, and this information can then be used to calculate the probabilities um, and ex expected information gain of uh, queries. So the difficulty, though, is that all three of these theories um, have a, sort of an idealised view, but they also have uh, performance factors which may intervene in the generation of behaviour. So we have this sort of distinction, a classical distinction within cognitive science of sort of a competence theory and a performance theory. 
Um, so competence being sort of the, the idealization, performance being what actually the, the subject does, um, given the limitations of the, the human cognitive system. Um, so within the hypothesis testing model, um, we might think about things like working memory decay or the, the strategy used to generate queries of, of symptoms or to, to uh, decide whether we should verify a, a hypothesis or discriminate between hypotheses. <clears throat> we might also have decay from the knowledge base that information you, know, you, you might remember what the previous case was perfectly, but you probably don't remember what the, the case five test items before was. So you have sort of decay of this information from knowledge base. Uh, and we have similar performance factors in the other two models. So um, this sort of presents a real difficulty. Although we can try to develop these sort of idealized models, in order to relate those models to behavior, we've got these performance factors that we need to take into account. One of the things that the computational modeling um, <coughs> does for us is really make a little bit clearer what those performance factors might be. I mean, once we actually uh, develop the computational model, you can sort of see within the scope, within the space of that model, um, how, the, how uh, performance factors might intervene in behavior. So um, here are the results I'm going to run through quite quickly for the three different models. Um, the human data is at the top. In each case, you have a canonical, what I'm calling a canonical model, which was kind of the, the standard model with, some, um, if you like, default parameters, default uh, sort of... Uh, access to memory and no, no decay and things like this. Um, and then um, a preferred model, so what happens when you implement some of the performance factors that we felt might lead to the um, effects that were seen, such as this difference between positive and negative information uh, and this gradual, um, well, by implementing that and some uh, a recency factor in the hypothesis testing model so that people are more sensitive to information that's um, recent rather than information that's uh, distant in past, um, we're able to basically replicate the, the effects in the human data. The, we didn't try to replicate the um, quantitative effects here, we're looking at the qualitative effects in terms of uh, no, uh, an increase in accuracy in both conditions but no interaction um, and a uh, decrease, uh, uh, no change in the number of symptoms queried in the dense condition but a decrease in the sparse condition. So we're able to do that um, in the hypothesis testing model by adding these performance factors. Um, similar results were obtained. They don't look as convincing in, in retrospect, but we were able to obtain similar results for the associationist model and the Bayesian model. Just one point to, to make about the Bayesian model, I said it was the, um, the sort of optimal approach to this. And you can see that with the Bayesian model, it can actually get 100% accuracy on this. Um, I'm a little bit puzzled when I came to looking at this more recently as to why we have a, a difference between the dense and sparse conditions here. Um, but certainly the Bayesian model um, you know, is able to perform this task without, without um, a problem. But in order to get the sorts of uh, difference between dense and sparse conditions here that we see in the human data, we have to add biases, for example, um, considering information, expected information gain by focusing on symptoms being present and ignoring symptoms being absent, for example. So, um, as I say, we're, the main sort of point of that was that we were able to um, capture the main effects in the experimental data in all three models. And you might say, well, you know, that um, means that you can't really discriminate between the models. You, you know, you've learned nothing from this. Um, I don't think that's the case. I mean, you might also say, well, you need additional data to discriminate between the models. 
Um, <clears throat> I think one thing is that it, it points out to the importance of including performance factors. But the other thing is, if we look at what we need to do to each of those three models in order to capture the human behavior, uh, then basically they were the same kinds of biases that we needed to add. We needed to add bias towards um, positive information over negative information and a bias towards recent information over um, distance information. <clears throat> so we have these kind of uh, meta uh, level, I guess, um, uh, conclusions that we can draw from this modeling work. So although we've got three different models that can all basically capture the data, we can still draw some conclusions that I think are conclusion, conclusions that fit at a, a reasonable level within, within psychology. As an aside, um, I can't really give this talk without mentioning um, Cogent. The modeling system that we used to develop this, um, you saw all of the diagrams were basically this kind of box scenario structure. Um, this is using a, a system developed um, initially under the postdoc I was working on with John Fox and Tim Chalice, um, with you know, very useful input by people like John Morton here. Um, Cogent was a, uh, or is, um, a system for modeling, a graphical modeling environment. The acronym stands for Cognitive Objects in a Graphical Environment. Um, but the idea is it gives you a, a, a um, palette of different object types that you can select and then configure by putting arrows between them, basically. But these objects are of specific types, so you can set properties of them. You can have a, 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 um, a box that is a propositional buffer, for example. But then the system makes clear that if you have a propositional buffer, well, you have a whole series of parameters that you need to specify. You can't simply say, this is a propositional buffer. You have to think about how is the buffer accessed? Does the buffer have decay? Does the buffer have... Um, uh, what happens if... Uh, does the buffer have limited capacity? And so on. So all of these sorts of things. <clears throat> um, there are also sort of a whole host of other um, types of object there that, that you can't see. So um, this is sort of this cogent system has formed a large part of the sort of infrastructure, modeling infrastructure used for that work and quite a bit of subsequent work. Okay. Um, let me move on to the third of these four areas, four models, and that's um, something very different. Um, imitation and stimulus response compatibility. Um, and this is work done uh, with Celia Hayes, um, largely driven by a, a certain amount of scepticism, I guess, about the role of the mirror neuron system. Um, and we're particularly interested in uh, simulating the data from two, uh, well, they're going to be, um, there's three or four experiments actually, but initially two experiments. Um, which look at stimulus-response compatibility. Stimulus-response compatibility effects are no, very well-studied effects within in psychology. Um, suppose you need to make a response to a stimulus that appears on screen. If the stimulus appears on the right, you are faster at making the response with your right hand than if it appears on the left and so on. Faster with responding on the left if it appears on the left. Um, but these particular tasks looked at um, responding, a response needed to raise the index finger or the little finger. The stimulus was a red dot or a blue dot, but that red and blue dot was imposed, superimposed on a hand, and simultaneously the hand is also raising its index finger or its little finger, and it might be the same hand you're using or the opposite hand, which basically means the, the thing you need to effectively ignore might be raising a finger that's the same finger in the same spatial orientation, or the opposite finger in the same spatial orientation, or vice versa. So there are sort of um, spatial compatibility effects going on and imitative compatibility effects going on. One of the debates in the literature is whether these effects are 
due to the same fundamental processes, or whether there is something fundamentally different about uh, imitation, which the proponents of the mirror neuron system might say that there's something different going on there. Um, so given the time, I'm going to sort of skip through this a little bit. We took a, a fairly standard model within the psychological literature for stimulus response compatibility effects, a um, model that probably owes a lot to Jay's work. Um, Basically, it's, a, it's another interactive activation network. So each of these uh, nodes corresponds to um, a, a unit that has an activation that varies from a minimum to a maximum, zero to one. We have nodes for the output, the motor nodes, raising the index finger or raising the, the little finger. Nodes for the uh, sensory nodes that represent the inputs that we really need to ignore. Um, and nodes for the imperative things, the red and the blue, which are the ones that we need to take account of. So if the red uh, dot appears, this node should be, will become active, receives activation from our central system that triggers lifting of the index finger in this particular um, uh, condition. Um, but at the same time, you know, we've got occurring, we might have um, the right little finger being raised by the, the image that's underneath the dot, which would tend to activate raising the other finger. So again, these nodes have activation values, they interact. Um, and using this, this simple model, we're able to account for, you know, probably not surprisingly, um, both the spatial compatibility and the imitative compatibility effects. So this is the, the human data, this is the model data. Human data is in, in milliseconds, the compatibility effects of imitative compatibility. Um, this versus this, and spatial compatibility, compatible versus incompatible. Um, we're able to replicate that here with the model's behavior being um, uh, graphed in terms of its, uh, the number of cycles to uh, generate a response. So my model is cycle, cyclic in the same way as the um, routine behavior model was cyclic. Um, we're also able, though, to replicate the data from a, a, a different condition where the stimulus um, onset uh, was varied. So the onset of the dot um, sometimes occurred shortly before the hand moved or shortly after the hand moved, and this led to um, the human data which is sort of like this, which looks a little bit messy. Um, the model data sort of basically replicates that effect and I think is, is less messy in that you can see that the um, spatial compatibility effect sort of goes up and goes down, basically um, sort of centered around zero. Imitative compatibility effect is basically a little bit um, delayed in, in terms of, uh, from the spatial compatibility effect. Um, <coughs> So we're able to replicate both of these experiments using this uh, fairly simple model, which gives us evidence to suggest that um, these stimulus response compatibility effects, um, spatial stimulus response compatibility effects and imitative stimulus response compatibility effects are mediated by basically the same processes. We don't need to bring in um, fancy mirror neuron systems or anything like this in order to account for these. Um, so you know, we're, we're simply... Um, so providing computational support, if you like, here for the experimental work and the, um, the argumentation previously developed by Catmore and Hayes in, the, in that experiment. Um, we've also sort of elaborated this with a, a slightly different model that is able to uh, learn, looking at the relationship between different learning rules within the model um, and uh, using standard Raskola uh, Wagner learning, we're able to show how the model can also account for subjects learning um, stimulus response compatibility when they, they have a number of different trials over a number of different blocks and the size of their effect 
um, is then dependent upon the type of learning that they've had. Without going into the details of that, um, again, here we have the, the human data at the bottom, the simulated data here. Um, it's maybe not particularly clear from that diagram, it's clearer from this diagram um, that in one particular condition, the stimulus, the um, uh, imitative effect is, is much higher. Um, and we're able to replicate that within the model and within the, uh, within the model as, so to replicate the human performance. Um, using a different learning rule, so-called Hebbian learning rule, we weren't able to replicate that. And this wasn't just sort of a case of, oh, we tried it once and it didn't work. We actually looked at a large area of parameters space because the, the, uh, the way the learning rules work is that there are a number of parameters that control it. So we looked across a range of parameters. Um, there was a, a reasonable region of parameter space where within the Raskola-Wagner learning rule, the model basically replicated the behavior, um, but the Hebbian rule um, would not add any value of parameters. So again, this provides support for the argumentation that existing well-known <coughs> approaches to um, learning are sufficient to account for the learning that happens in these imitative experiments. We don't have to resort to some kind of special mirror neuron system. Okay, um, so this brings us to the, the fourth and final model that I want to talk about, and this is now um, much more, well, more recent and sort of ongoing work, and this is really looking at trying to elaborate that model of routine behavior to non-routine behavior. So looking at the sorts of modulations that are required in order to explain um, uh, how you modulate the routine system in non-routine situations, but also relating it to um, being informed by neuropsychological data. Um, so this falls within the, the general area of executive function or executive process research. Um, a standard, fairly standard definition is that executive functions um, are general purpose control mechanisms that modulate the operation of various controls, cognitive processes or sub-processes, and thereby regulate the dynamics of human cognition. So in other words, executive functions are high-level control functions that don't um, affect behavior directly, but they affect how other systems operate together to generate behavior. So within the contention scheduling supervised retentional system framework, um, executive processes are those processes that basically support non-routine behavior by modulating the operation of contention scheduling. Um, executive processes are uh, tricky to, um, uh, to investigate because they're behavior, uh, their, their effects are seen indirectly in behavior. It's not like studying memory if you sort of assume that memory is a, um, behavior is a sort of directly, the behavior on memory task is a direct, direct reflection of memory. Uh, executive functions is, is a sort of much more complex sort of beast being sort of removed from the data, um, at least one level. But there are a number of classical tasks. Um, one of these is the Wisconsin card sorting task, which um, I'm sure a number of you are, most of you are familiar with. Um, but in the task, um, there's a series of cards which the subject or patient is asked to sort. They've got some target cards here, and uh, you know, the first target card might have one red triangle, two green stars, three yellow crosses, four blue circles. And the subject isn't really given any instruction here. This is given this card, sort it under one of the target cards. Um, so they might decide to sort it under this card because it's got one figure on it, or they might decide to try to match the colour and sort it under the green cards or maybe under the shape. And all the experimenter does is give them feedback saying that's right or that's wrong. Hopefully they quickly learn the rule, and maybe the rule is to sort by colour, say, to start with. 
Um, but sure enough, shortly after they learn the rule, the experimenter changes the rule without telling them, starts giving them negative feedback again. So the, after six correct trials, or uh, a few different uh, versions of the task, the experimenter changes the rule, and the subject must adapt their behavior. Um, certain patients, frontal patients, are known especially to be um, often to be, uh, have, have difficulty in adapting their behavior once the rule changes. So they tend to perseverate, they tend to repeat um, using the previous rule, although you know, not universally. Um, now, Stuss and colleagues, Don Stuss and colleagues, one of those colleagues being Shellis, looked at a number of different um, groups of patients, frontal patients, with uh, damage in right dorsolateral, right dorsolateral, superior medial, and inferior medial sort of parts to the frontal cortex, as well as um, patients who had um, damage elsewhere in the brain on, on the right or the left side and control subjects, age-match control subjects on this task. And you can look at a number of different dependent measures. You can look at the number of uh, categories or times they basically go through the rules. Um, so, you know, they get, they get the colour rule right, then they go into the shape rule, and then they go into the uh, number rule, uh, and then they go back to the shape, uh, the colour rule, the number rule, and so on. Um, with 64 cards, you know, they might get up, up to six rules right if they're pretty much perfect. Um, but the, the control subjects were getting you know, age match controls, let's say, sort of four-ish rules right. Um, not significantly different from the uh, patients with damage elsewhere, not in the frontal cortex. Um, but the frontal patients were doing significantly worse. The argument that Stuss and colleagues tried to make, though, was that these different patients, different patient groups, had subtly different deficits. So in particular, the inferior medial patients tended to make one particular type of error more than, significantly more often than others. And this is a set-loss error where they would basically be sorting cards correctly, and then even though they get positive feedback, they lose where they're up to, forget the rule, basically. So they're sorting cards correctly according to shape, and then at some point they start sorting according to number or colour. Uh, and these inferior medial patients tend to do this uh, slightly more often than any of the other, than the control patients or the, uh, the control subjects or any of the other patients. Um, the other patient groups tended to perform these so-called perseverative errors, where different, these PPC and PPR are two different types of perseverative error, where basically they are repeating their actions, uh, repeating the, the rule even though they're getting negative feedback in sort of subtly different ways. Now, um, Stuss and colleagues presented a fairly complex argument as to why this might be occurring. They actually argued that although these patients, uh, say these three different groups of patients, were all exhibiting largely the same behavior, they argued that they were producing this behavior for different reasons. Um, yeah, it's without any kind of uh, computational model behind that, I think their argument was um, rather weak and it was very, uh, certainly convoluted at best. So, um, in order to try to sort of get at this, um, we use some work that uh, development of the work by Stuss. As I say, Stuss is working with Shalas, so Stuss and Shalas were both authors of these two papers. More recent work, they developed this um, beginnings of, I mean, it's a box and arrow diagram from the, the sort of box and arrow diagram that psychologists used to um, uh, generate all the time, um, where different cognitive functions were associated with different regions of the, uh, the frontal cortex. So monitoring, for example, was, they claimed, associated with right lateral frontal cortex on the basis of a, a whole series of studies where the patients who had right lateral damage tended to perform 
worse on aspects of tasks which could be argued to be, um, be dependent upon monitoring. Um, patients with inferior medial frontal lesions though, tend to perform or their, their behavior across a range of tasks was explained in terms of a, a deficit in attentiveness, where attentiveness is basically keeping them on track to task. Um, but again, this, this model is very much um, a sort of a verbal model described um, in not much more detail than the, the sort of detail I've given there, although with, with a lot more data. So we tried to elaborate this by taking um, our model of, the, of contention scheduling Again, this is a familiar cogent diagram. Taking a model of contention scheduling, which is basically sort of this part of the, the, the system, elaborating it with supervisory processes like monitoring and um, task setting, and this sort of attentiveness process, keeping on track, and then applying this to a task such as the Wisconsin card sorting task. Um, so this was work done um, by Mariam Sood, a master's student a couple of years ago. Um, she elaborated this model, or we elaborated this model for the Wisconsin card sorting task, which really means basically specifying how monitoring works, and monitoring has really got to sort of take account of positive and negative feedback, or maybe just negative feedback. Um, the scheme is involved for this task. You know, it's a very schematic task. You sort by rule. That one of the rules might be sorting by color or by form. Um, and then um, the process is very sort of abstract processes required for problem solving here. It's very simple problem solving. I'm not sort of saying this is a, a complex task at all, um, but given that you know, you're getting negative feedback and the card that you've just put down matches on the basis of colour, then you can infer that, well, probably the rule isn't to sort the card by colour. Um, so developing the model in that way, though, we're then able to look at, well, what happens if you do impair, um, say, attentiveness? where attentiveness was supposedly this function associated with um, inferior medial uh, prefrontal cortex. Um, do you get the sorts of errors, or the error profile, um, that the patients, the inferior frontal patients, uh, inferior medial frontal patients demonstrated? Or if you impair um, monitoring, do you get the sorts of errors that were seen by the right dorsolateral patients? Um, <clears throat> so, the method, I mean, one of the difficulties with this work, though, where it's two minutes to seven. One of the difficulties of this work um, is that we need to somehow sort of relate damage in the model. We're going to, the idea is that we can take this model and damage it by decreasing the effectiveness of some of the, effectively some of the boxes. Um, but how do we know how much to damage the model? So we equated the, the different types of damage um, by looking at the number of categories achieved and trying to balance the number of categories achieved in the damage model with the number of categories achieved by the different patient groups. Um, and then we look at the number of perceptive errors and the number of set loss errors. Um, and basically, the, the general pattern um, exhibited by the patients is seen here by the model as well. So we have um, an increase in particular set loss errors with attentiveness, um, increase of um, perceptive errors in the other patient groups. The STUS data is shown in white, and the simulation data is shown um, by the gray bars. So um, given the time, I think I should just um, really try to wrap up with a very brief discussion of some methodological issues. Um, I won't go into any details here, though, but I think that one of the difficulties with modelling is that it's, it's... I was going to say it's easy to develop a computer programme that mimics human behaviour. It's not easy to do that, but it's certainly easy to do that without really caring much about how that programme functions or what's underneath the hood, if you like. Um, the old sort of 
or uh, look no hand sort of idea. You can sort of generate, build a model and run it and say, well, look, it, it mimics behavior. Um, there are a lot of things, though, that we need to be care careful of when we're doing computational modeling. One is this distinction between implementation of a model and specification. Psychology operates at a different level than required for computational modeling. Computational modeling requires computational completeness, if you like. We can't run a model. Uh, you know, a psychological theory is usually nowhere near as, so it is much more abstract than a, a computational model. And we need to be sensitive to those differences in our methodology. Um, we also really need to, as a, as a consequence of that, we need to be careful about replication as well. We need to be sure that the things that are um, uh, producing the behavior of our model are things that are actually theoretically important rather than things that are maybe these sort of low-level uh, so-called implementation details. And those low-level implementation details are often not described in the papers. So you know, we need to be sure that the papers that we write are actually understandable. Uh, sorry, are actually produce, describing our models in a replicable way. Um, this also means, though, that falsification in the traditional Popperian sense doesn't really work within computational modeling either. And we need to have a different methodology there. Um, there are you know, philosophers of science... I was going to say philosophers of science around. There are philosophers of science who have, have subsequently died, but um, Lakatosh argued for a different approach to um, falsification, supposedly um, what he calls sophisticated methodological falsification, um, where we distinguish between um, core assumptions and peripheral hypotheses. And I think this kind of distinction fits in very well with the sort of work done in computational model, where the core assumptions are basically the psychological theory. And hopefully we elaborate that psychological theory by incorporating the uh, peripheral hypotheses in as, as time goes by. Um, and finally, I think we need an, an experimental methodology where we are actually investigating our, our models by doing computational experiments, trying to understand the limits um, and the predictions of those models. So let me, me finish there. I want to end with um, supposedly this take-home message. As I said, I needed a famous person. Um, so I want to argue, I, I think I've argued that computational modeling contributes a unique degree of precision to com cognitive theorizing. You don't get that precision in, uh, without doing the computational modeling. And, but it does require a rigorous methodology. When I um, gave my first talk at Birkbeck, my job talk, back in 1995, the then head of department, William Marsden Wilson, uh, rather disparagingly said, well, aren't computational models all just hired guns anyway? Um, and... Um, so we have a, a picture of a hired gun. Um, you can, I guess you, that's a question you can answer yourself. I mean, I would say that um, I haven't sort of, if I, if I was a hired gun or if computational models were hired guns, then we would be moving around from one model to the next. Um, I think there's continuity across those models. And um, you know, one of the things to emphasize is that that final model is, again, looking at that contention scheduling model, developing the higher levels on it, and there's continuity across all of those models, which I suggest suggests that I have a, um, a strong theoretical basis, and I'm, I'm not just about um, modeling anything that someone suggests I should model. Anyway, thank you very much for your attention. Hey. I should... <laughs> The, obviously, you know, the, the, the breadth and depth of the work is difficult to follow, um, but also every comment I was going to make has been made by somebody, either Nick or, or Rick, beforehand. Um, so I'm not going to say anything about the work directly. I'm going to let the work speak for itself. Really what I want to say is maybe um, one comment about a, a character trait of, of Rick. Um, 
What hasn't come across directly here is that Rick is really a conciliatory and considerate colleague. Um, and this has played out both uh, in his interactions with the department, the very the press contributions he's made to the department that, that uh, Nick mentioned, but also really in his approach to cognitive science. Um, uh, Rick, I think, putting words into his mouth, is somebody who believes that um, theories can be moved forward through the synthesis of opposing views rather than the kind of creation of divisions. Uh, um, at a time in cognitive science when there was a little bit of animosity between various groups that called themselves symbolic and sub-symbolic, um, Rick was really committed to not identifying himself as belonging to one of those groups, but rather having a foot in all the different groups and extracting from those different groups the strengths of, of each of the different approaches in order to to provide a kind of synthetic whole explanation of, of cognition. Um, and this is demonstrated in part by the cogent platform that he mentioned, which was a platform that meant to be easily accessible, meant to be able to be used by a whole range of different people, and that provided you with the tools from these different disparate um, theoretical frameworks. I guess in an effort to, to bring them all together. Um, this kind of considerate, uh, balanced, synthetic approach um, has uh, also led to him being recently appointed editor-in-chief of Cognitive Science, the Journal of Cognitive Science, which is the flagship international journal of cognitive science. Um, and if we think about the, the traits, the characteristics that are required to do that job uh, successfully, things like very keen intellect, um, balanced judgment, respect from individuals, and I think those are the words uh, from colleagues of shape, those are the words that really describe Rick best, characterize Rick best, and, and his work um, as well. So um, there's an, um, an interesting characteristic of inaugural lectures that uh, nobody can actually ask questions. But that's not true in a different room. <laughs> is invite you to first thank Rick once again, and then to move next door where you can have enjoy a glass of wine and feel free to grill Rick on everything. <laughs> so thank you very much. Okay. Thank you. Thank you.